you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the same passage we used for our call to worship this morning, Psalm 8. This past week was the anniversary of the controversial decision of Roe versus Wade. In 1973, that decision marked a turning point for our country as the Supreme Court determined four things. First, they determined that government could not stop an abortion. Secondly, they determined a woman's decision to terminate her pregnancy was because of her right to privacy, a right which the Constitution neither mentions nor implies. Third, they determine that the fetus is not a person in the sense intended by the Constitution and therefore has restricted rights. Fourth, they determine that different regulations should be maintained for the different trimesters of pregnancy. This meant that during the first trimester, a woman can have an abortion on demand without stipulations whatsoever. Yet during the second and third trimesters, some regulations apply, but essentially, a woman may still have an abortion on demand so long as the fetus is not viable. If it is, she must only show that it is a danger to her health. Since that decision in 1973, however, no less than six court decisions have broadened the definition of woman's health to include anything related to psychological, emotional, economic, or general family considerations. Furthermore, the consent of the father is now no longer needed for an abortion, nor the consent of, of parents for girls who are still minors. And the final act of our nation's descent into madness in this area came in the 2000 decision that said a pregnancy may be terminated right up until the baby is delivered at nine months through a partial birth abortion. Now, if you don't know what that is, I suggest you talk to somebody who does or you Google it because I'm not going to describe that horrific process given the nature of the mixed company we have with us this morning. In the end, his book, Politically Correct Death, Francis Beckworth summarizes the current situation well when he says, quote, it is safe to say that in the first six months of pregnancy, a woman can have an abortion for no reason. But in the last three months, she can have it for any reason. That decision in 1973 rang loud as like an alarm for the evangelical church in this country who was found to be sleeping when it came to important social issues. And since that time, there has been much talk of being pro-life. Now, rather than just jump on a bandwagon, we have to ask ourselves, why are Christians pro-life? In other words, should we be pro-life? Does the Bible give us warrant to be pro-life? Should we really care about abortion and other life-related issues? I believe the answer to that question is a resounding yes. And this morning, I want to show you that God's people are to be pro-life because God himself is pro-life. For the glory of His own name, God has created humanity with glory. And that glory necessitates that we place a very high regard on human life. And all of this we want to see this morning from Psalm 8. So listen again. Follow along as I read God's Word. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set Your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. 
You've given him dominion over the things, over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of God. In many ways, the psalm is unsurpassed as, an ex- as a great example of what a great hymn should be. It celebrates the glory and grace of God, recounting who He is and what He has done, and, he re- and it relates that to us and to our world. Furthermore, there is a mixture of a joy and awe causing us to want to also sing, How majestic is your name, O Lord! The psalm naturally breaks down into three parts. We want to look at each of them this morning. And then we want to take some extended time to think through the implications of what Psalm 8 is saying for certain key issues in our society, which we call pro-life issues. All right? So briefer than normal exposition and then longer than normal application. That's where we're going this morning. So the first, uh, the first stanza in this Psalm 8, the praise of God's glory we see in verses 1 through 2, the praise of God's glory. In these first two verses we see the praise of God's glory. The psalmist begins by saying, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now again, it's important that we understand uh, how to read our English Bibles. As far as I know, virtually every Bible in English, although there's some uh, smaller, minor translations that don't do this, but Uh, You'll notice that in that verse, Lord is there twice. The first one is in small capital letters, and the other is in lowercase. Uh, English translations do this so that with that first uh, small capital, so that you don't mistake those two words together. It's not saying a Lord, our Lord. No, it is saying the Lord. That is the name of God Himself, the God in heavens. He is our Lord. If you'll remember in Exodus, we read about God commissioning Moses to go into Egypt and to tell Pharaoh, who was oppressing his people, to let the people go. And Moses says, well, well, who should I say sent me? What what God are you? What What is your name? In Exodus 3, we read, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. This expression becomes then the basis for the shortened Hebrew name Yahweh. The name speaks to God's all-powerful self-existence. He creates, but was never himself created. He has servants, but doesn't depend on anyone for anything. He is fully satisfied in his own existence, and his character will never change. He He never had a beginning, and he will never have an end, but embodies eternity itself. He has always been, still is, and will forever be. He is Yahweh, the great I Am. And David is saying it is that God. It is that Lord who is our Lord, who rules over all things in majesty throughout the earth. The the God of Israel is not just a local God. He's not just some territorial uh, deity. He is the God over all creation. And in fact, so glorious, so majestic is He that even the earth itself, the heavens, are not able to show all of it. In Psalm 19, David says the heavens declare the glory of God. But here, David reminds us that God's glory is also above the heavens. That is, I think he means we can see God's glory in the creation that's around us. But that doesn't mean we've seen all of God's glory. It doesn't mean that the glory that we can behold is exhaustive of the glory that is in God. What's more, though the majesty of God goes out in glory all over the earth, even beyond the heavens, it's still found among the humble, the weak, and the lowly. 
In verse 2, David says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, to be honest, I don't exactly know what David is getting at here, but I think that in the contrast, what he is saying is simply this, that even among the most lowly and humble of people, God has so established the strength of the praise coming out of their mouths to his name that even his enemies cannot stand against him. It's an incredible image. Those that would arrogantly speak against God, those that would, that would deign to stand over the, the Bible, for example, and say it's just the product of human hands, it's not truth, we can throw it in the garbage... They stand in contrast to tiny children whose babbling and innocent speech declares the praises of God and reveal faith in Him. But what's more amazing, this psalm lays out, is the intention that this great God has given to humanity itself. And this is the bulk of the focus of this psalm. So the second thing we want to see in verses 3 through 8 is the grace of man's glory. The grace of man's glory. Moved by the glory and majesty of God, David is forced to ask, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you would care for him? David steps back and he says, When I consider all that you have created, when I consider your glory as it's been displayed in the stars and the moon that you have created and the, the, the beast of the field, the laying out of the seas, why are you concerned with us? Why do you set your care and your affection, your love on us? What are we? We're nothing, God, compared to you and all that you have done. We appear to be so insignificant. And yet, David says God has specifically done two things for us. First, God has given us glory and honor. David says, you have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, that, that should immediately be oh, a bit of a shock to you. Because, because the Bible consistently says glory and honor belong to the Lord. Glory and honor belong to the Lord. Glory and honor belong to the Lord. And here, God has a, David says God has assigned a portion of those things to humanity. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that God has crowned humanity with glory and honor? Well, I think it goes back to uh, creation, Genesis 1 and 2, where God uh, creates the very first two people, Adam and Eve. And he says, let us make man in our image. After our likeness. To be made in the image and likeness of God means that humanity is in some way a reflection of God. It doesn't mean we are God. It doesn't mean we're part of God. It doesn't mean we're even little gods. It simply means our pattern of existence is based on God's very existence. In part, that means we are moral beings. We are relational beings. We are spiritual and rational thinking beings. And so the God who is all glorious in, make, in patterning us after Him has also invested in us something of His glory. But more than that, because we are God's image bearers, we stand far and above the rest of creation. We aren't like the beasts of the field, regardless of what you hear in school and what you see on television. We aren't just like any other animal that is out there. We are distinct. We are not just part of the food chain or a byproduct of evolution. We are, in fact, portrayed as the high point of God's creation. It is, it is the, the crown achievement where He is speaking everything else into existence. And He comes and He forms man out of the dust of the earth, and He breathes life into him. We are unique in having been crowned with glory and honor of His creation. And because we have been given glory and honor, secondly, God has then given us dominion. God has given us dominion. 
David says, you have given man dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever pass along the paths of the sea. Well, the Lord is king over the entire universe. He has extended a portion of his authority, his rule to humanity. Again, this is, goes back to the creation mandate that we see in the book of Genesis that some of you talked about weeks ago in Sunday school. In verse 26 of chapter 1, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them, that is, let mankind, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. If God is king, then man has set, been set up as a lower king under his authority to have dominion over God's creation. That means humanity is to care for God's creation, to maintain order in God's creation, to use God's creation for humanity's good. In Genesis 1 and 2, the animals and the fish and the birds are all told to multiply and fill the earth. But God says to humanity, multiply and subdue the earth. To subdue it. To, to take it under our power and our authority and engage dominion over it. We are given responsibility to govern this world even as God himself would. Now just think about that for a minute. In some ways, that's exactly what we have done, isn't it? We have taken dominion over this world. We have subdued its resources to increase our understanding of God's creation and to produce technology for the benefit of other human beings. In just a fraction of the planet's surface, we grow and harvest enough food to feed the entire world twice over. We have plunged the very depths of the sea, exploring life there, tapping geothermal energy. We've even launched out from our planet, past the birds, past the skies, and put a man on the moon, for goodness sake. We've done all these things. And yet we've also abused our responsibility, haven't we? In the process of our dominion, we've damaged God's planet. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not... Uh, one of the global warming zanies, all right? And uh, if you want to talk about that later, we can. Nevertheless, it's obvious that, uh, that uh, in uh, harvesting trees and other things, we've not always done it the right way. There's a learning curve. And instead of uh, being concerned to pause and think through and do the kind of testing that we sometimes need to do, we just ram it through because of profit, because of money, because of sinful greed. We've destroyed entire species of insect and birds or to get more trees to print magazines and newspapers and books. We've gone so far as to kill other image bearers, people like ourselves. In short, though we bear God's image and have been created after His likeness, we have also been defaced by sin. Genesis 3 says that not long into this world, we, we, we rebelled against God's ultimate world. And we decided that we could trust our own judgment better than His and the results were catastrophic. Not only do we break our relationship with one another and creation, bringing suffering and death into this world, but we incurred the righteous wrath of a holy God because of our defiance of Him. For our rebellion now, we stand under God's judgment. But just as God was gracious in creating us with glory and honor and establishing us to have dominion over His creation, God is also gracious in restoring us to relationship with Him. It's very interesting. Hebrews chapter 2 makes clear that Jesus came to rescue us from God's wrath. And you know how he makes the argument? He makes the argument in part by quoting Psalm chapter 8. He says, God brought salvation to us through Jesus by identifying with humanity, by identifying with us, both in terms of our glory and honor as well as in our being marred by sin. The author quotes this very psalm and then makes this comment, We have seen Him, Christ! who for a little while was made lower than the angels. 
namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Notice, Jesus did not become like the angels. There are fallen angels. There are angels that have rebelled and stayed under the curse of God, and Jesus did not become like them. He did not become like them to redeem them. Instead, he became like sinful humanity, to redeem sinful humanity. Jesus identified with us in our sin, and though he remained perfect and without sin, he died on the cross to bear our sin under God's judgment. That which we deserve fell on to him. The result is that all who now look to Christ, the one who died as a sin bearer, trusting him, they will be forgiven. They will have relationship restored back to God. In fact, God even says that through Christ, we now become part of a new humanity, crowned again with glory and honor, but without being marred by sin. In this way, by his identification with us, by his death, Jesus becomes the first human being to be crowned with such glory and honor as he brings many sons, a new humanity, to glory. Isn't that what we just sung? So how do we respond to all this? How do we respond to, being, to, to both God's glory and to us being created with glory? Paul, or excuse me, David, I can tell you've been in the New Testament too long when everybody's Paul, David shows us in verse 9 the response that we are to have to God's grace. The last verse, of, uh, the last verse uh, here is basically his response to pondering all that he has said in the previous verses. The reality of who the Lord is and how we are in relationship to him provokes him to again say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David has seen the exalted glory and majesty of God in all of creation. He has seen how God has set his special affection and care on humanity. And he shows the proper response is worship. Not idolatry, not worshiping created things, but worshiping the creator, the one who has crowned us with glory and honor. Even today, though marred by the stain of sin, we still bear God's image. And at the end of the psalm, David returns to where he began praising the majesty of God, and likewise so should we, as we stand back and comprehend all that God has done for us. Even more so, now that we are on this side of the cross, we see the fulfillment of all these things in Jesus and the redemption that he has brought from the stain of sin. How much more then should we give glory and honor to the one who stands exalted above, with, with majesty far above even all of creation? Now, in thinking about that psalm and thinking about Psalm 8, having seen the glory of God and the glory He has given to man, having laid that as a foundation, now we have to ask ourselves, how does knowing that, understanding that, believing that affect how we think about issues in contemporary life, particularly in these issues related to what we call pro-life issues? The primary thing we have to think of, I, I think, take away from this is this, and we'll draw the implications out in a minute. We cannot worship God while devaluing His creation. We cannot rightly worship the one who has all power and authority and glory and honor while at the same time we devalue and degrade those who have been created after His likeness, after His image, with a measure of honor and glory. So to the degree that we devalue God's image bearers, we are devaluing God. Neglect disregard and degrade humanity, and you are neglecting, disregarding, and degrading God. 
Now, despite that reality, many societies and cultures have found ways to ignore the worth of humanity. In fact, our culture excels at treating humanity with contempt. But as God's people, we are not to be conformed. We are not to be conformed to the social mores and to the loves and to the values of the world and society and culture around us. We are to break out of those molds. And we are to allow God's word to conform and to shape us, to create within us values of God's people. So the question is then, well, how are we to think about these pro-life issues? Okay, I have five. First is abortion. Today, the value of the unborn human has been reduced to the same level as skin cells that come off in the shower. They are worth so little that they can be washed down the drain. And yet, if we believe God's word, we will see that as with any human being, the unborn are created in God's image and so have inherent value and worth. In fact, God tells us even before we are born, God places value and sets his affection on us. In Psalm 139, the psalmist says in part, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. But when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. The psalmist says, from, from, from the very moment that, that life, that, I, that me as a living person sprang into the, into the womb, and, and the tiny molecular, of course, he doesn't know the, this language, but, but he's talking about being knit together just like individual strands. And we would say now today with the advances that we have, on the microscopic level, the, the individual cells growing and replicating and multiplying, God putting us together and cultivating that life within us, God already has all of our days marked out for us. That says that that person is not to be destroyed for any reason whatsoever. No amount of inconvenience is worth taking the life of another human being. No amount of scientific progress is worth the taking of a human life. The president recently made a very sobering and revealing statement when he said that if his daughters had made some mistakes in life, he did not want them to, to suffer under the consequences of a baby. So their mistake results in a baby, and that would be suffering for them to have to endure having that baby. That says something about the value of human life in our culture. More than that, though, more than just bearing a burden ourselves, very often the argument is advanced now that these, these um, mass of cells, as they're called, are not persons. These babies are not people. Um, they're human beings, uh, it's human life, but it's not person yet. Now figure that one out. Nevertheless, we can use these for the good of all humanity to alleviate suffering. We can harvest stem cells from them. So the big, the big push today is to allow uh, just uncontrolled um, uh, fabrication of stem cells from pre-birth humans. Well, here's the, the sad truth, and that is so far... Embryonic stem cells have produced no helpful medicinal purposes. They've not worked. 
they've, they've not worked at all. And they've tried over and over and over and over and over again. And, and you don't hear this in the news. Sometimes you will. The reporter will say, well, but has anything actually come from embryonic stem cells yet? And they say, no, no, nothing yet. But, but the potential is incredible. And so the potential for somewhere down the road, for some kind of advancement, some kind of treatment, for a disease is so powerful in their minds, they're willing to destroy human life again and again and again and again and again and again and again for it. When all the while the solution is sitting under their noses. See, not all stem cells are bad. There are what's called adult stem cells. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're an adult. It just means you've been born. And so when my babies were born, they had this thing called the umbilical cord that came out, all right? And thus, we all have belly buttons. And no, Adam did not. We'll talk about that later if you can ask a big question, okay? But inside that is called cord blood. And guess what? Load it with stem cells. Load it with stem cells. Inside your bone marrow, you have stem cells. And guess what? Time and time and time again, successful treatments from adult stem cells. It's amazing. It's amazing. But see, here's the thing. Human life doesn't have a priority to them. And therefore, they just hold out this hope that somehow embryonic stem cells are going to be the cure to everything in the world. When maybe they have to say, God doesn't want us to do that. So he's not going to let that happen. But even if it did happen, even if it did, we need to understand, we need to understand that no destruction of human life is worth a cure for anything. One commentator says it well when he says it is time to reject the prevailing notion in our community that scientists know best and that all progress is good. Science can bring wonderful benefits to the sick, to the sick but it must not be done at the cost of exploiting some of the most vulnerable humans in our community. That's how we should think about abortion. No. No. It is never right. It's never acceptable. Second, what about euthanasia? This is the other end of life. One is before you're even born. The other is when you're elderly with, in the minds of some people, one foot in the grave. Euthanasia, oddly enough, means good death. It is the act of assisting someone in committing suicide. Here in, in Michigan, we know this well with people like Jack Kevorkian. But former Colorado Governor Richard Lamb was a strong proponent for euthanasia even back as far back as 1984 where he suggested the elderly have an obligation to get out of the way for the next generation of people. Every year there is a growing acceptance of such practices. In fact, um, it, it, it was... It was both grotesque and shocking at the same time. There was a, a new medical drama that, 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 was, that was on in one of the, the networks. You've probably seen previews for it. And uh, it was about this uh, nurse that had come from either Iraq or Afghanistan, and, and now she's at a hospital. And so it wasn't meant to be comedy. It was meant to be drama. Nevertheless, uh, in the previews of this, of this medical show, there is this nurse who was right out of nursing school. She's young, and she's sitting with this patient that basically, as far as I can tell, they've said uh, it's time for them to just pull the plug and let them die. And she's literally hunched over crying over having to do this. The other more experienced nurse comes in, says, what's the matter? And she says, I don't know that I can do this. She reaches over, pushes the button, and says, come on, let's go get lunch. And walks out. That's supposed to be funny. That's supposed to be humorous about how this girl is struggling to understand what medicine is all about. Uh, so the lady has to come and show her how it's done. That's not a pro-life stance. That's not pro-life. Now, certainly, there are times when we do have to pull the plug. There are times when we have to say, they're not coming back. There's no brain function. 
the machine is literally just keeping the body going. And for all we know, the soul's already departed and is in the presence of God, in which case it's appropriate then to pull the plug. But here's the thing. We've got to know when that right time is and not just say things like, well, we, we want them to have a good death. I want them to have a high quality of life. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. The Bible doesn't say that quality of life trumps everything else. Uh, my mom is just in her 50s, and because of an injury at work, um, she is going to have long-term problems with her knee now arth through arthritis. Basically, she's going to walk with a limp probably for the rest of her life. No, no treatment, not going to do surgery, anything like that. Now, uh, would I say, Mom, because you can't run and go you know, throw the ball and get down on the floor and you have a hard time, you should just end it, you should just retire, you should just go into the bed and maybe put a needle in your arm and be done with it? You say, well, that's really harsh. You, you couldn't do that. You're right, but just extrapolate it out. If someone is still conscious, if someone still has a mind that works and a heart that feels emotion, why would, we, why would we prematurely end their life? Yes, suffering is a result of the fall. Yes, suffering is bad, but suffering is not so bad that it trumps the existence of human life. When Jesus passed the, the, the man who was blind from birth and his disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? He doesn't have a high quality of life, Jesus. Doesn't have a high quality of life. Who's responsible for this? Jesus says, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but the glory of God might be displayed in him. You know the name Johnny Erickson Tana? Someone who, um, swimming at a lake uh, shortly after high school, dove in too shallow, hit her head on a rock, and was paralyzed basically from the neck down. Um, it would have been very easy, and in fact she struggled with it, to think, how am I going to continue on? And yet she did. More than just continue, she has thrived as a Christian. She has taught women for decades what it means to know and to love God and their, and their Savior, Jesus Christ. My son and I watched a, a video on YouTube of a guy from Australia. He was born with no arms, no legs. He just has basically a flipper for a foot, and that's it. Body, head, mouth, brain. He thinks, he talks, he rashes, he, he, he learns, and he said, even in sixth grade, I thought maybe I should just commit suicide. What kind of a life is this? But he didn't. And part of it was by finding Jesus Christ. And now he goes to schools and even to adult leadership things, and he says, look at me. All I've got is this little flipper on my foot. But I can swim, I can surf, I can dress myself, I can, uh, I can cook myself an omelet. Um, there's more, there's more to life than quality of life. There's more to life than the absence of suffering. We're not, we're not Buddhists, okay? We're Christians, and we acknowledge that life is, bears the imprint of God's image, and therefore it has inherent worth. Ultimately, euthanasia is, 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 at the end of the day, considered because of fear, fear of pain, fear of indignity, fear of dependence. The world's answer is just end it. The world's answer is euthanasia. You don't want someone having to change your diaper while you lay in the bed? Then just kill yourself. That's not Christianity's answer. Christianity's answer is comfort, compassion, and sacrifice. And we see people of the world says, just end it, and we say, no, you come live with me. No, let, let me care for you. Let me assist you. Let me do all the dirty and, and things that you're embarrassed about so that you can feel 
that you do have worth as one made in the image of God. Let me show the same kind of love and compassion that God showed for all of humanity in sending Christ, allowing Him to suffer and not have a high quality of life by me caring for you. That's Christianity's answer to euthanasia. What about orphans and widows? This is the third thing I want to consider. The Apostle James says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, why is caring for orphans and widows an indicator of true religion? Two reasons, I think. Number one, because you don't get anything back from it. It's one thing, and there's a rich guy, and he comes, and, and I say, well, here, you have the best seat, and, and, and I'll come meet you for lunch, and sure, I'll come change your tire, just call. It's one thing, it's a widow of an orphan. Why? He can put money in the plate. They can't. They're receiving money from the church. And what James says is, when you show love and compassion and mercy to someone that can give you nothing back, it's an indicator that you have the right motives. Furthermore, the reason why you do it is because in honoring them as God's creation, again, you're honoring the one who created them. You're showing, though, though, though in a bad place, they're destitute. Though not looked upon with high worth in the world's eyes, they're still image bearers. They're still made in the image of God. And so you serve them and you love them. In the New Testament, there was no welfare system. And yet, having less money than we do today, the early Christians were able to take in and care for numerous people who found themselves unable to care for their own needs. I wonder why we can't do that today. I wonder why we can't do that today. I have a, I have a thought. It probably varies from person to person and church to church and culture to culture. But my main thought is this. We like stuff more than people. We like stuff more than people. But that's not the Christian attitude. That's not the Christian response when we help orphans and widows and others who find themselves in similar situations legitimately unable to support themselves then we demonstrate the value of human life friends right now there's a tremendous opportunity for this in haiti isn't there most of us are not able to go down and to do anything but you know what we do have in spades in this country is money and we can give to organizations who have people on the ground um, putting clothes on naked children giving homes to families that have none, and putting foods in starving bellies. We can, we can do that. We can do that pretty easily. You know what else, though? Some of you, once things settle down, some of you may find yourself in the position where um, you're going to feel called to adopt a little Haitian baby who lost parents and aunts and uncles and has no chance of having any kind of provision because there are going to be thousands there. And you're going to say, I have all this money. And I can either blow it on myself on vacations and boats and cars and movies that I don't need, or I can show love to this little child who has no family, just as God showed love to me when I was dying in sins and had no family either. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit at His glorious throne. And the King will say, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer Him and say, Lord, when did, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. 
thinking again of Haiti, there is a brand new ministry that has started called Churches Helping Churches, and its intentional goal is to target not just Haiti indiscriminately, but specifically these Jesus brothers that we can help. Next, what about the issue of ethnic equality? Regardless of the politics that were involved, frankly, there was something momentous about the election of Barack Obama. Given our nation's past, there was a part of our history that that seemed to be laid to rest as the first black man was elected president of the United States, holding the highest office, not just in this land, but arguably in the entire world. It marked that we have come a long way in this country, and yet there is still an underlying inequality among people in the eyes of some in this country. Whether they're Asian or African or of South American descent, for some of us, there is still a strong belief that men are not of equal worth, that men are not created equal. A couple weeks ago, I was frankly floored. I was shocked. I, I didn't really know what to say when I found out that there were some problems happening in the church here in Michigan. Now, sad not to say it wasn't there are problems in the church in Michigan that shocked me. Rather, it was the source of the problems, and that was an apparent difficulty with leadership and ministry because of a lack of care, in fact, more than a lack of care, uh, a prejudice against certain ethnicities. It's one thing for that to happen in the world. It's quite another for that to be evident in churches. That has no place in Christianity at all. The Bible says from the very beginning that there's no such thing as human races. There's not the African or the black race and the Anglo. No, there is one human race from one creator on one planet. And though there may be different uh, ethnic differences among us, ultimately there is one humanity, all made in the image of God, all of equal dignity and worth. But what's more, when Christ comes... He has with him the power to bring together people who previously had prejudices against different ethnic groups. And so he says, no longer will the Jews and the Gentiles be at war with one another in my church. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. There is no African. There is no Cambodian. There is no Russian. There is no Peruvian. There is no Canadian. There is no American. We are one in Christ. That's what Jesus says. And therefore, that's what we must live out, finally and briefly, missions and evangelism. You say, how is this a pro-life issue? It's pro-life in this. If we believe in the sanctity, in the inherent value of human life, if we believe people are made in the image of God and they have inherent worth, then we should not hesitate to help them know their Creator and escape judgment for their sin. The blessings of forgiveness and eternal life that we know and enjoy should be shared with joy and love to all, so that all may know. Sharing Christ is the ultimate test of whether or not you're pro-life. If you can look someone in the face and hold them, have a conversation with them, and hold them in such contempt that you say, I don't want to share Christ with them, then you are not pro-life. I don't care if you picket abortion. I don't care if you adopt children from across the world. If you cannot open your mouth and share Christ, you're not pro-life because you are de facto condemning that person to an eternity in hell. So mark well, the ultimate expression 
of pro-life, the ultimate expression of one who thinks rightly about abortion and euthanasia and orphans and widows and, and ethnic differences is one who tells of the creator, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh and died for sinners that all people might come to worship and trust him and serve him. Psalm 8 shows us the dignity and the glory of man as the crown of God's creation. And that worth of man means that we cannot rightly relate to God if we are not rightly relating to other people. To be godly is to be pro-life. And in the end, we realize the fullness of our worth and our glory and dignity being found united by faith to God's Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you created us. Father, you have seen our sin. You have seen the sin of all of humanity. You have seen the wars. You have seen the terrorism. You have seen the cruelty. You have seen the hatred. You have seen the disgusting things that we have done. And yet, Father, you chose to create anyway. More than that, you chose to create and not leave us to be condemned in our sin. But Father, you have chosen to create us and to even love us and to send your Son to save us. Father, when we consider the high regard you place on human life, I pray that we would likewise come to hold human life in high regard. Father, help us not to be swayed by the vain arguments and the sinful selfishness and lack of real priorities that this world has when it comes to these issues. Father, help us cut through the fog with the shining clarity of your word. Father, may all this be evidenced in our passion to tell others of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.